The Athletic. Hello, how's it going? You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast, tackling tactical topics with vim and vigour on a weekly basis. I'm Ali Maxwell. With me this week, hi Michael Cox, hello. Hi Ali. How's it going? Yeah, very well, thank you. Quite enjoying the international break. Always think the playoffs are good fun. So yeah, all's good. Yeah, you you told us about that last week. You were very excited for this. What have you seen? What's been good so far? What do we need to know about if some of us haven't been keeping such a close eye over international football across the world? Well, I'm sure everyone's seen it. I mean, it wasn't one of the games I, I listed as looking forward to, but Italy against North Macedonia, obviously, that came out of nowhere to be the story of the, the international break. Maybe whatever happens tonight um, when the second leg is being played. I mean, that was an incredible game. Um, Italy a little bit unfortunate. I mean, really, they were they outplayed North Macedonia for the vast majority of that game. But um, yeah, shock result, huge win for North Macedonia, who obviously got to the European Championships in, in quite memorable style. Uh, unlikely they will progress against Portugal tonight. But uh, by the time people are listening to this, I may uh, I may be looking foolish with that prediction. Tell me, is Goran Pandev? He retired from international football, didn't he, in the summer after the Euro? So even a Pandevless. North Macedonia beating Italy. I'm sure he'll have plenty of bragging rights because he's spent his whole career in Italy, hasn't he? Yeah, there's a few players actually in the squad, uh, including the one who scored the winner, who, who very much Serie A veterans and uh, works out well for our friend uh, James Horncastle, who's over in Porto at the moment, anticipated the big Portugal versus Italy showdown but unfortunately seems to be our North Macedonia correspondent. <laughs> Sensational. Well, apologies to, to Pandev. I forgot his four-game stint with Galatasaray in 14-15 there. Not a whole career spent playing in Italy. Uh, hello to John Muller. How are you? I'm great. Happy to be back. Yes, John, you've been busy on site re- writing some brilliant pieces recently. Uh, one went live this morning, actually. You've been writing about why transfer fees and player values, not the same thing. And we all need to slightly recalibrate how we're thinking and talking about transfer fees and how much a transfer costs a club. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're doing a series on The Athletic right now about historical transfer fees and which ones kind of offered the best value. And I don't think that that's a very sensical question. Uh, I think that we need a lot more information before we can talk about which player transfers are good value. And the media's Mm. fixation on transfer fees, I think, is detrimental to the way that fans understand the football business. The old classic is, well, we've got him for free. Right. Yeah. Kylian Mbappe, he he must be, you know, nothing player. He's going to move for free. <laughs> I mean, on a on a slightly related note, John, do you find it weird that particularly the British press, maybe the European press, talk about wages in weekly terms? I mean, presumably it's a hangover from when there was a maximum wage in England that was a weekly wage. But when we talk about a fifty million pound transfer fee with hundred thousand pounds a week, I mean, just automatically, it's almost not really expressing the number in a way that you can really compare to the transfer fee, if that makes sense. It's it's extremely strange for me, and I assume that there were good historical cultural reasons why England does this. But in the United States, you know, they report salaries per season, which is a normal unit to report salaries in. <laughs> and I, I think that if we're talking about which players, you know, sporting output provides a good value for their club, we need to talk about amortized transfer fees per season. We need to talk about wages per season, also amortize the bonuses and the agent commissions. And then we've got a good idea of how much the buying club is really spending on this player. And we can compare that to what they add on the pitch. Well, your article is a good place to start. I would push everyone towards the athletic site to read that and then to listen to the rest of this podcast because we're going to be talking about Xavi Hernandez's FC Barcelona. We said when he was hired, I reckon we'll probably catch up and see how he's getting on in a couple of months' time. And that is this episode. John wrote a piece just before El Clasico, how Xavi's new style 4-3-3 is helping Barcelona rebuild. Michael Cox gave it the tactical analysis treatment after their 4-0 win against Real Madrid. That leads us to this episode. It's time to hear all about Xavi's Barcelona. Before the turn of the year, Michael, they were in poor shape. Seventh place in La Liga on January the 1st, knocked out of the Champions League. Xavi was sort of sifting through the wreckage left by Ronald Koeman, but results weren't excellent straight away in his tenure. Since defeat to 
Athletic Bilbao in the Copa del Rey. It, it's 12 games unbeaten. They've scored 32 goals in that time, 2.67 per game. Uh, and his 16 league games in total have yielded 37 points, 11 wins, four draws and a defeat. We spoke about the fact that his only previous coaching experience had been in Qatar. That was being held up as a sort of stick to beat this appointment with. But, Michael, you have to say it appears like he's taken to life as Barca manager very well indeed. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing to say is that Barcelona weren't in quite as much of a state as the league table made them look. I mean, when you looked at the basic underlying stats, it was quite remarkable, actually. There was one stage where I think they were seventh in the league, but the underlying uh, expected goals had them pretty much as good, maybe even ahead of Real Madrid, who were top of the league at that point. Um, but he has adjusted well. Um, I think when you come in from a, you know, very much a lesser league, Qatar to La Liga is a big jump. There's, there's almost two question marks. One is, will the manager understand the demands of playing in, oh, sorry, of managing in La Liga? And the second is, to be frank, will the players respect the guy? Um, and I think this is where the kind of he knows the club thing has come in in both respects. He's not coming in as, as you know, a nobody who's just from the Qatar League. He's coming in as a club legend. And I think that automatically means that the players respect him and want to get on board with his ideas. And of course, uh, he's played more Barcelona games than anyone else, I believe, for the club off the top of my head. And therefore, he, he does understand La Liga. He obviously has been, uh, I imagine, following it as closely as ever on television, etc. So I don't think there was ever going to be too much of an issue in terms of him understanding the, the level required. But yes, I think his work has been really impressive so far. I think there was a clear structure from the outset. He he seemed to really understand what he wanted from, from his key players. There's been a couple of changes in in terms of who he's using where, but there was, I think, a, an obvious plan from the outset, mm. which is always a pretty good start. The team was at such a low ebb, John, uh, certainly on the pitch, certainly off the pitch as well, uh, late last year, but results excellent to start with. Uh, what can the underlying numbers tell us about the extent of the improvement in their play under Xavi and perhaps how sustainable it might be? Are they instantly an elite club once again, one of the best in La Liga, one of the best in, in Europe? Well, you know, I, I think that Cox mentioned this a minute ago, but Barcelona was never quite as bad as they were made out to be, even in the depths of the crisis. Uh, I think that when Koeman left, uh, Barcelona had the best expected goal difference in La Liga. Uh, you know, they were they were still, according to 538's model, which I think is a little bit more sophisticated than simple expected goal difference, they were still one of the best teams in Spain, one of the best teams in Europe, but they've clearly gotten better. Uh, and I, I think that over the last two months or so, uh, you know, we've seen them scoring four goals a game practically every week, and the underlying numbers are just as impressive. And I, I don't think that there's any real reason to think that this is not sustainable. But I do think that that's, there's a question of kind of, is this the Barcelona that Xavi wants to arrive at, or is he building towards something else next season? That is a very interesting question. We're going to be pulling at that thread a little bit later on. The, the crowning moments so far... Michael, 4-0 winners against Real Madrid in El Clasico. They'd lost to them previously in the Supercoppa in January, uh, a result that even in defeat, uh, per John's article, seems like that was being held up as a kind of moral victory. The Barcelona, uh, those involved with the club, were, were looking at that and seeing, yes, we've seen progress being made. We're excited about what comes next. Of course, what has come next is a very long unbeaten run and this 4-0 shellacking. Uh, as a... Well, as a Real Madrid-Barcelona game, it, it looked very different, I would suggest, in terms of key areas and key battles to games that we might remember uh, from the glory days of a, a decade ago. Um, you wrote that a decade ago it was all about the midfield zone. Not anymore. Yeah, it did feel very different. I mean, a 4-0 win in, in El Clasico is, is obviously a momentous result. And I think the the funny thing about it was, I mean, there's been some heavy scorelines in this fixture over the last 10, 15 years. Even go back to the 90s, there was a couple of Five nils. But this wasn't like the last couple of goals came on the break where Real Madrid were pushing forward in the last minutes and trying to get back in the game. I mean, it was 4-0 after 51, 52 minutes, I think. It, it was a, a real, real convincing performance and, and not any fluke when you look at the kind of underlying numbers for that particular game. But yeah, it was completely different to what it used to be. In my opinion, it the Classico used to be about the... The the midfield battleground, it was always about Barcelona trying to get an extra player in that zone and Real Madrid often beefing that up with an extra defensive <laughs> midfielder or extra defender in the case of Pepe when he used to play there. An extra but two was, an extra two defensive midfielders sometimes. Yeah, often. But this was, I mean, a little bit like the first game where the key battle was Vinicius against Mingueza. This was all about 
Barcelona getting their wide players into space. I think Torres had a really good game from the left, but it was Dembele down the right who was up against Nacho. And I think that was, even on paper, a kind of battle that you would have fancied Barcelona to make the most of. Um, but he was excellent. Uh, and th- just the way that they switched the play, the, the fact that Dembele was always uh, really on the touchline, even when Barcelona had the ball on the left, he was al- almost hugging the touchline and they switched the ball to him very quickly uh, from defence. And they also did the same to, the tor- uh, to Torres on the left. PK in particular was excellent at getting the ball forward. So yeah, it did feel very different. And, and the same goes for Real Madrid. I mean, they had some counter-attacking opportunities and Vinicius was there key player I thought particularly a couple of moments on the break in the first half so yeah it did feel to me very different from uh, the, the fixture it used to be John uh, all the key battles down the sides down the flanks 1v1 duels to what extent was this a, a pretty nice distillation on the biggest stage so far of Xavi Ball at Barcelona I, I think that it was very clearly a distillation yes a, a sort of paragon of Xavi Ball. Uh, the the wide wingers have been a thing that he's insisted on from day one, even when he didn't have wingers, which was <laughs> an issue for him when he came in. Uh, Dembele was hurt, Fati was hurt, Depay was hurt. He was really working without wingers until that winter transfer window, which has been so crucial in setting off this kind of explosion of goals that they've had in the last couple of months. Uh, because Ferran Torres's superb off-ball movement has really been big and kind of stretching the lines. Uh, Dembele and Traore on the right side have been targeted for one-on-ones, uh, you know, very much by design uh, from the early stages of build-up. And I think that we saw both of those things in the in the uh, Clasico. What I wrote about was kind of the way the midfielders are also helping to stretch the back line. Mm. And we saw some of that in the Clasico, but maybe not as much as we had in previous games. Well, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast in part two. Well, this 4-3-3 of Xavi Hernandez and things like the roles of the central midfielders. That's what we're going to be talking about in a little more depth. Xavi's 4-3-3 interpretation, possibly not the same as some of his Barcelona predecessors. Who's doing what? That's next. Do you like Formula One, but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Michael, you told us a few months ago upon his appointment that Xavi and Qatar had played at times with a three-at-the-back system. Uh, He hadn't been a disciple of what might be considered a Barcelona style of play elsewhere. Uh, In the early days at Barca, he chopped formation a little bit, perhaps as John alluded to, because he didn't necessarily have the wingers that he was after available to him. Because of that, uh, despite his strong links to the club and despite the club's strong links to the 4-3-3 basic shape and formation it didn't feel like everything pointed to that being the formation of choice but in the end all roads did lead to 4-3-3 yeah I think it's basically getting his his key players in roles where they're most comfortable um and there's a couple of players you can say are particularly key with that one is Sergio Busquets who obviously was a long-time teammate of Xavi um, and has at times played in a double pivot, but I think he's always been most comfortable in that role in front of the defence. And even though they are, there are some elements of his game that feel increasingly uh, questionable, I mean, he really can't cover ground. And when he's defending counter-attacks, it, it is... Um, I mean, he just looks so slow, to be honest. Uh, and that's been an issue in previous classicos. But he's still very good on the ball and very good at organising the side and very good, I think, at directing the play with his passes, which is particularly crucial on the side that wants to kind of switch the play quite quickly. Um, and he's very good at certain types of passes. I mean, his disguised pass into the front players is, is very effective. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a great surprise that he's landed back on 4-3-3. But I think even if this wasn't Barcelona and you just had this combination of players at another club, you would look at that and probably think this is a squad that suits 4-3-3. 
those outside central midfielders, John, are crucial to what Xavi is trying to do um, with a bit more, well, with quite a lot of space to operate in because of the width being held by the wide players. Uh, talk to me more about the specific role of the outside central midfielders. More generally in recent weeks, that's been Frankie de Jong and Pedri. Of course, we've seen Gavi as well, the youngster in that role. Yeah, and Nico is sometimes uh, called in as well as sort of the fourth guy in that rotation. And each of these guys has slightly different qualities uh, personally, but all of them tend to be used in a fairly similar similar role in Javi's 4-3-3. Uh, he likes to push both of his central midfielders up between the lines, much higher than they used to play in the 4-3-3 uh, that Javi was part of, where he would drop you know, from central midfield to alongside Busquets in the buildup, and he would kind of follow the ball through the stages of the buildup. That doesn't really happen with this Barcelona. The midfielders start between the lines, and sometimes... Th- not sometimes, but frequently, they run beyond the line. And this is something that Frankie de Jong has always been good at, uh, despite you know kind of making his name as a deep-lying midfielder and being very good facing the game. He's also very good at making off-ball runs. It's not something that I thought that Pedri and Gavi would be good at, and maybe it's not something that comes naturally to them, but they picked it up very well. Even Ricky Pooj, you know, tiny little five foot six Ricky Pooj, is making these depth runs. Uh, so it's clearly something that he is asking from his team tactically and not just something that's coming naturally from the way that these guys play. And what it does is it really stretches those lines out and it makes Busquets the creator. It, Donny Alves is frequently playing kind of alongside Busquets. And those guys are doing the, the real midfield creation while the central midfielders or who we think would be the central midfielders are either between the lines like number 10s or pushing beyond it as sort of auxiliary forwards. Uh, Michael, is this similar or identical to what might have been described as a free eight or two free eights previously. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne always springs to mind when I think of that expression. Yeah, there's elements of that. Certainly, it's pretty much a front five in possession. Um, it reminds me, those kind of runs from midfielders going in behind the opposition defence always remind me of the way that Ajax play. Um, it's been a key part of their game. I mean, you can go back to the 90s and, and see them making runs like that. But I think it's really difficult to stop that kind of run. Uh, I think it's something Tottenham did very well under under Pochettino, actually. Often Kane would be occupying one of the centre-backs and Deli Alley would just shift forward from midfield to get a long diagonal from one of the centre-backs. And there's always a question about who picks him up because it's a really difficult run for the midfielders to track. And if the defenders are being you know, brought to one side by the centre-forward, I think it's really easy, well, relatively easy, to get a player in behind almost one-on-one in those situations. So... Yeah, there's a there's certainly elements of of Guardiola at Manchester City and like I say, Ajax, classic Ajax sides, as well as uh, the Barcelona teams that Xavi played in. And it does mean because they are, you know, there's proper spacing when Barca are in possession, big gaps between players. There's a few snapshots that I've seen in in various articles from yourselves and from Dermot as well, where Busquets in the defensive midfield role, you know, he he can be in a position with no teammates within about 10 metres of him as Barcelona are building up the ball here. It's it's a real tightrope act. And I guess Busquets is therefore as important as ever. And it's it's lucky that he's really a sort of gold medal tightrope wa- walker, right? Because that role that he plays, if not interpreted properly, would cause a whole deck of cards to fall down, John. It really is pretty remarkable how... Uh, Durable Busquets has been as Barcelona has gone through this kind of shifting uh, shapes, shifting coaches, you know, over the last few years, as Cox said, he's, he's very slow. He's always been very slow, Uh, you know, in his, in his mid thirties, he's not getting any quicker. Uh, And, and so he was really suffering, I think, in a a lot of Barcelona's kind of more open shapes under previous coaches. And in this particular system, I think that he's, there's, you still see some of that, right? Barcelona still has trouble in rest defense uh, they still frequently give up quick transitions the other way because it's not just Busquets. It's also, you know, Piquet, Alba, Alves, all these guys are are old and slow and uh, it's it's asking a lot. But, you know, nobody can dislodge Busquets. Uh, Frankie de Jong came in and people thought, oh, he's going to replace Busquets. Like that clearly didn't happen. Nico hasn't pl- replaced Busquets. Just the intelligence that he has in that six hole is irreplaceable, even when his physical qualities are lacking. I have to admit, I was at the Camp Nou a couple of weeks ago to watch Barca beat Athletic Club 4-0 and I wasn't watching the game that closely tactically because I had enjoyed a long, a long Sunday afternoon and evening uh, of tapas and cerveza. But, Michael, I spent most of the game watching Busquets kind of mesmerised, as I did when you and I and our good friend Tom Warville were at the 
the European Championship semi-final, Spain against Italy at Wembley over the summer, I spent a lot of the game thinking Busquets might be one of the best players ever and probably won't be heralded as such, maybe to the same extent as his former teammates Xavi Hernandez or Andres Iniesta. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, John was John was spot on. I mean, his his durability and his longevity is is quite remarkable, really. Um, and yeah, he's a wonderful player. It's, it, maybe it's a bit of a cliche to say about any player, but he is one of those players that wait when you see them live, you realise the extent to which they understand space and the extent to which they are fooling opponents with almost everything they do. And yeah, he's he's the one player who it just feels like things are pivoting around him. I mean, with with the two outside midfielders going forward with, you know, the wingers so high up the pitch, Busquets is the one who has to sit there. And uh, yeah, I, without wanting to repeat the point, when they lose the ball, I do. I mean, there were three or four times in that first half against Real Madrid where they just had to resort to tactical fouls. I think maybe two. I think Busquets got booked. Frankie de Jong get, uh, got booked for a similar foul. Pedri would have got booked for another foul, but referee played advantage. They were a little bit desperate in that respect. But um, it's great to see him still going, Busquets. I mean, he's even when he was a young player, when he first came into the side, he played like an experienced player. And to a certain extent, he hasn't really changed his game over all these years and, and is still going strong. To be fair, I think that tactical fouls are a standard part of the game plan for any team that plays a high line, even your Manchester Cities, your Liverpools, and, and always Barcelona as well. It may be a little bit more desperate now, as you said, uh, but I, I think that the tactical fouls themselves... Are, are not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, can can Busquets get in there to actually make the foul or does Vinny get by him first? No, I take your point. You know, I think if Pedri got that booking, it would have been all three of them booked within the first 35 minutes. And then obviously you can't do that again. But I do take your point. I mean, maybe it's something they need to work on in terms of being a bit more subtle about it. I mean, Liverpool are notable for the fact they basically never get players booked because they, I mean, they do tactical foul as, as all big clubs or all possession-based clubs do, but they don't do it quite, you know, they're not rugby tackling players like <laughs> like Barcelona kind of. This is a, a subtle tactical foul and a heavy tactical yellow. Yeah, no, I agree, yeah. Well, it does raise an interesting question going forward, doesn't it? Because Busquets is 33 years old. He's had a very, very long career. His longevity, you know, his availability, his fitness has been amazing over that time as well. And, and he certainly looks the part. But if we're talking about one of Barcelona's quite clear and possibly unavoidable weaknesses in the current system being Busquets as the screener uh, struggling a little bit when the opposition teams are attacking in transition you know the perfect players who can both control the game as well as Busquets who are as intelligent as Busquets and also have all the physicality and the speed to cover the ground that perhaps he lacks I don't know if many of those players exist and I don't know if Barcelona can afford those players in the immediate future but do you get the feeling that that might be something that they look towards and if they did get someone who prioritized the defensive side of the game to tr- to shore them up a little bit how much might they lose if they didn't have someone who could play make to the same extent as Busquets well, I think long term, I think they've got the players already there hmm. um, because they have Pedri, they have Gavi and they have De Jong. And as John mentioned earlier, De Jong made his name really as a defensive midfielder, a very unusual one with Ajax who would come very deep and get the ball and really drive at opponents. Um, but I wonder what Xavi is thinking because he like, he clearly likes De Jong in these kind of roles. Pedri and Gavi are naturally more attack-minded players. But we know what the kind of things Javier will want from that holding midfield. And I don't think it's unreasonable to think that maybe any of the three could end up in the holding role. We'll have to wait and see. I mean, Javi was actually a player who found his role when he shifted from being the deepest midfielder to the right centre midfielder mm. in the 4-3-3. But yeah, given what we know about Barcelona and their finances, although it must be said they did uh, enjoy a particularly good January transfer <laughs> window for a club who had almost been consigned to uh, shopping in Woolworths uh, bargain buckets for the next <laughs> few years... Um, yeah, the, the solution might well be that they already have them in the squad because they do have, yeah, three outstanding central midfielders. And if you want them all in the side when they're all fit and, and 100%, maybe they could all be played together. I, I think it's worth noting that three or maybe four consecutive Barca coaches now have all uh, come in thinking that they have kind of a way to fit Frankie back into a defensive midfield role and all have eventually landed on him as a center mid, usually on the right, running beyond the back line. That just seems to be what he does now. That seems to be how every coach likes to use him. 
And I think that's because his defensive midfield role at Ajax was so specialized and so unusual, and it just doesn't fit the system that Barcelona play right now. And so I think that I disagree that Barcelona has somebody who's going to step in for Busquets in that number six position uh, in the squad right now. They have a ton of good eight slash 10 players and nobody who really kind of can fit that role if they're going to keep playing the 4-3-3. Well, that is one of the things to keep uh, an eye on over the next few years, see see if Xavi can do a, a coaching job, a player development job, or whether it might be something uh, more transfer related for Barcelona in the pivot role. Um, the fact that they don't have a Xavi equivalent and the fact that their striker, Aubameyang, is dropping in to receive the ball to feet, but does not regularly play the sort of passes over the top that Lionel Messi played when Barcelona were in their heyday, means that they have to find the passing from elsewhere. Uh, John, uh, Busquets, sure, maybe with a bit more responsibility on that front than he would have done previously, but also the centre-backs now. It feels like the, the range of their passing or the range of the passing that they're being asked to perform under Xavi uh, has increased significantly. So we're seeing Gerard Piquet, the long passer. Yeah, which Piquet has always been capable of doing and which he has always liked to do, but hasn't always been part of the Barca style, right? Barca has, has traditionally liked very short passes in the Guardiola mode. Uh, and Xavi has clearly made long balls from the center backs part of his game plan. Uh, you know, as they shuffle the ball around the back, as they circulate around the back, when the ball finds an open center back, uh, very frequently the midfielders will start making those depth runs and the center backs will look over the top as kind of a first look. Uh, and, and I think that not just BK, but also Eric Garcia is very good at distributing from the back. Uh, Garcia is also comfortable at carrying out of the back, which is kind of a new wrinkle. Uh, he, uh, I think we've seen some games where he's run kind of all the way up to the final third and he looks very comfortable doing that athletic, the athletic game that you were at, I think was one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, Ronald Araujo is the one Barcelona center back who, you know, can really defend these days and, you know, is, is athletic as well in a way that Eric is not. And he doesn't quite have uh, those ball skills, that distribution. And so that's another kind of a player development job for Xavi to work on. Mm. Let's talk about the fullback roles in this team. Uh, John, how's Xavi approaching that area of the pitch? Well, very early on, we saw Jordi Alba get pulled deeper. Uh, he's always been an overlapping fullback. That's his bread and butter. Uh, he's had some injury problems in recent years. He's now, I think, uh, 32, 33, something like that. And he's, he's slowing down. And as an overlapping fullback, you know, he was becoming a defensive liability. And so Xavi pulled him back, not necessarily inside, uh, you know, as a sort of co-defensive midfielder, but just in a more reserved position. And then he went and brought in Dani Alves, which I was not expecting at all. Uh, his teammate who hadn't played at Barcelona since 2016, who I think probably a lot of fans will be forgiven for thinking had retired, uh, had been hanging out in Brazil for the last couple of years. He comes back into the side and really becomes an essential player for this Barcelona. Uh, Serginho Dest also has done a great job under Xavi, uh, but has is hurt right now. And so Dani Alves is kind of the uh, right back slash also co-defensive midfielder with Busquets. He kind of roams the, the right half space all the way up and down and is a key distributor in this team with the midfielders position high. So, Michael, that's in keeping with uh, some of the, the fullback combinations that we've seen with the top teams over in England. Uh, one of them may be holding a bit of width, but in general, you know, the, the big job of these fullbacks is increasingly to play from deep and very specifically in a defensive sense to cover the space to guard against transition attacks. Yeah, and they've, they've done that role very well. I mean, Alves, I always thought, would become a central midfielder. He's, he's had some dalliances with that position, but I mean, at his best, he was, at times, you could say Barcelona's best playmaker, which, um, you know, is remarkable considering the other players they had, but um, he was always outstanding on the ball. And I've been impressed by Jordi Alba. I mean, he's always had a an ability to play more defensively. I remember there was a, a win over Milan, long, must be a decade ago, where he played almost as the left side of a three-man defence, which I remember not expecting for an overlapping, sprinty left-back. But he's tucking inside and playing a more reserved role. But he's also one, you know, a little bit like how we talked about Kyle Walker last weekend, uh, Ali. I think it's just going once or twice a game. Mm-hmm. An opponent's kind of a, a lulled into a full sense of security by him tucking in and then he suddenly goes and it's, you know, he's still maybe not got the acceleration involved, but still pretty quick. So, um, yeah, I've been impressed by them. It's It's almost like 
compartmentalise into two sets of five. You know, it's almost five players to defend and five players to attack, and rare that you get that much interchanging between between the two sets of players. Um, but yeah, it's all working very well. I think I think Xavi deserves credit for adapting what we would consider a classic Barcelona system to uh, to what he's got at his disposal. Although I think we probably forget that you know. There was a different way of Barcelona playing 4-3-3 before Guardiola came in. It wasn't so much based around the central midfielders. It was more based around wingers. It was more based around uh, yeah, certain elements of, of play in terms of the fullbacks as well. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a Barcelona 4-3-3, but a slightly different interpretation. Well, maybe Xavi preferred pre-Pep Barcelona 4-3-3 because, as John alluded to, he instantly decreed that he would play with wide wingers. You'll see wingers. I want to play with wide wingers. Uh, Wide attacks decided El Clasico, as we heard earlier. And John, not just that game. They have perhaps become the the key area of attack for this team. Yeah, they have. And to be fair, I think Pep Guardiola also liked his wingers to hold with. uh, But they made a lot of runs inside, you know, when when Messi dropped. And we see less of that in this team. The wingers hold with uh, until they get a chance for 1v1s. Now, Ferran Torres on the left is not really a 1v1 artist. He's very much an off-ball movement guy. Um, but on the right, they've got two of the best 1v1 artists in the world in Adama Traore and Usman Dembele. And so what they like to do is, is very frequently, you know, shift the defense to the left, combine with some short passing patterns, some interchanges over there, and then switch, uh, hit long switches to the right and just leave Dembele to go one-on-one against any fullback in the world is going to be, you know, overmatched. And Dembele has really flourished in this role in particular. Adama's done well uh, as well. He, you know, draws double teams, triple teams every time he touches the ball. But Dembele has had the end product and he's averaging, uh, I think, 0.75 expected assists per game under Xavi right now. And we saw that in the Clasico when he really was the team's best creator. He came on for the last 10, 15 minutes against Athletic and it was a bit unfair, really. I think Barca were already 2-0 up at the time and because of Dembele and and let's not forget, he has a point to prove and he's making up for a lot of lost time and a lot of time spent on the treatment table trying to prove a lot of people wrong. Uh, He certainly did that against a very tired Athletic Club uh, defence. Adama Traore is always an interesting topic, I think, Uh, and... He's had a good start to life at, at Barcelona. Michael, it was interesting what John said about his expected assist numbers being dwarfed really by Dembele's and perhaps that comes back to what I feel like has been said about Adama for, for many, many years now, which is in certain aspects of his game, he's pretty much unrivaled and very, very hard to uh, to to replace or very, very hard to replicate. Um, but that final product has always been somewhat questioned. And I don't think that's necessarily particularly up for debate now but I guess my my greater question is is it still worth having a player like this if you're trying to be an elite team is Adama's elite skill set worth the maybe lower than average final ball we talk about attacking gravity John mentioned it there he demands two sometimes three defenders at any given time even if his next pass his final pass or cross is a little below par or his decision making perhaps or a mixture of the two is it still ultimately worth it for the trade-off that you get a bit more space for your other attacking players yeah well I think when you have a player who has very clear strengths and very clear weaknesses you need to make sure you're using them in the right role and, uh, and that's really what they've got. They've got a, a side that is based around stretching the play, and he can definitely do that. Um, so yeah, he's. Um, I think he's been useful for them. He uh, he is good in those one against one situations. His, his final ball isn't very good. I don't think you find many people who disagree with those two things. But yeah, uh, when you've got a side like this that's stretching the play, I do see a use for him. Yeah, there was a comment from someone called Stephen F in under one of your articles, I can't remember which, that said, I think Traore might be most useful as psychological warfare than for actually <laughs> providing much creatively. He panics defences, and like you point out, he makes space for other players. Uh, it's nice for Xavi, who clearly wanted wingers, uh, John, to have these three players who offer something a little bit different, but ultimately exactly what he wanted. And uh, I'm interested to hear you say earlier, you you wondered whether this might be a a sort of parking spot for Xavi's Barcelona, not necessarily where he sees the the team long term. It's nice for for Xavi to have these these three options, uh, all offering something a little bit different and all performing pretty well. Uh, Well, let's just touch on Aubameyang a little more closely.
Michael, he left Arsenal. Not many tears were shed. An incredibly, well, just a crazy contract that he had there, which I think the Arsenal fans were fairly keen to, to get off the books. He hadn't scored for Arsenal since October. He'd had a spell of inactivity due to a, a COVID-19 uh, positive test and then a departure from January's Africa Cup of Nations due to a heart problem scare. I don't think many people would have expected us to be talking at the end of March with Aubameyang having scored seven La Liga goals in five starts. Absolutely sensational stuff from nowhere almost for Robert. Yeah, he's done very well and he's done very well in, in some of the things where I don't think people thought he was very good at. I mean... He's attacked crosses very well, which he kind of did well at Dortmund. I don't remember him particularly excelling in that respect at Arsenal. But against Real Madrid, I was impressed with the fact that he actually came short and received the ball to feet and was linking play and actually at one point set up Torres for what was actually probably Barcelona's best chance of the game. Um, that he, he, It was a one-on-one that he side-footed just wide. Um, but yeah, he's been very good in all, all aspects of the game. It is remarkable rejuvenation. Would you be a bit wound up if you were an Arsenal fan and you thought, hold on, but we quite like our striker in the current system to drop in and to link play and to be a really effective link player to some of our wide forwards, attacking midfield players who can offer a goal threat. And of course, he is scoring as well, which might not necessarily be the same for for Lacazette, who was left behind. Yeah, I mean, that's why it's so surprising. I just didn't see many signs of him doing that well at Arsenal. There were some games earlier this season where he just barely contributed. He was, you know touching the ball four or five times in the first half. It was quite incredible. So um, I can't really explain that one. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a, a big rejuvenation, yeah. Well, it's worth noting that he scored a hat-trick in his first Bundesliga game for Dortmund. He scored 10 in his first 13 Premier League games for Arsenal. So fast starts are, are something of a theme across Aubameyang's career. Also, really annoyed, which I'd never even thought of before this morning, he never played a minute for AC Milan where he spent a few years as a youngster. Because if he had, he would have played in all five of Europe's top five leagues. He's made a good start to life in the fourth league that he's played in, in La Liga. Of course, Memphis Depay's at the club as well, John. He suffered an untimely injury in December, returned from injury to find this grinning Aubameyang in his place and thriving. Uh, They've got Luke de Jong there as well, offering something... Uh, they've got Ansu Fati, who I'm interested to know if you see as uh, someone to occupy the, the nine role here or as a, a, a wide attacker. Uh, interesting options for Xavi to have. Yeah, I think that same question applies to Depay, and it's not quite clear to me how he fits into this team now. Uh, I, I think that he's always been sort of a hybrid uh, left winger, inside forward, sometimes uh, center forward. And Obama Yang kind of had that same ambiguity at Arsenal in a way that he hasn't at Barcelona. His role is much more defined and, and clearer here. I don't think that Depay drops in and links play as well as Aubameyang has, which has been surprising. Uh, you know, Xavi just two years ago had singled out Aubameyang as a player who was not a good fit for Barcelona because he couldn't combine in tight spaces and he just didn't have those those ball skills. And I think that, you know, Aubameyang still is not exactly a false nine, but he is a nine who can drop in and hit that third man and, you know, produce these fourth man combinations, these up back throughs uh, to the midfielders running beyond. And he's done that very effectively. Fatih, I think when he comes back, will be probably sharing time with Ferran Torres on the left. Mm-hmm. I think that he's a somewhat similar player, although he does prefer the ball to feed a little bit more. Um, and so I, I don't think that Ansu Fati will have trouble fitting back into this team. I do think that Depay probably will see his way out fairly soon. Well, it's a good team to watch at the moment. At the time of recording, they've scored four goals in a league match five times in their last seven La Liga games, uh, all very well on the attacking front. Uh, Out of possession, John, uh, can you talk me through uh, the general strategy so far under Xavi? Uh, How and where do they look to engage or press the opposition? Sure. So we've talked a lot about their kind of shape and possession. Uh, They're very good at possessing the ball. They're very good at moving together as a team into the opponent's half, uh, where they play a sort of a 2-3-5 attacking shape, not an uncommon attacking shape. Uh, You know, sometimes if the opponent is playing with two forwards, they'll drop one of their fullbacks into the back and form a temporary back three, all very standard stuff. Um, But I think that because of those pace problems that we've talked about in the back five, uh, they've sometimes tried to be very careful about when and how they lose the ball. Uh, one way that they've sort of controlled that is through this emphasis uh, on one-on-ones on the wings. I think that they very frequently make sure that if they're going to lose the ball, it's going to be in a one-on-one on the wing. They're going to have a midfielder nearby. They're going to have a fullback pressing up 
and they're going to have three guys there to counter press very quickly and, you know, either force a long ball or just force the ball out of bounds. They don't let teams recycle either. You're going to attack them quickly or not at all. Uh, the second way that they've kind of avoided bad counter pressing situations is with this emphasis on long balls, uh, you know, putting it over the top early and often. Uh, if, if they're going to lose it, you know, it's going to be kind of a loose ball in the center where then Busquets, who is obviously incredible at reading plays, can step up and counter press and put an unexpected ball into the box, which is something that he does beautifully. And so I think that those two strategies have sort of controlled. If they were playing a lot of, you know, sort of short combination play in midfield, like we picture Barcelona doing, and they lost the ball there, they might have more trouble, uh, you know, stepping up mm. to counter press in these two more controlled situations. It basically sounds like Xavi has, has really excelled early on in kind of finding solutions to any problems that they might have been having, uh, finding a style of play both in and out of possession that suits the players that he had at his disposal. And of course, it doesn't look that like the Barcelona team that Xavi played in under Pep Guardiola. Uh, there's a few similarities and some quite key uh, differences. Michael, you said earlier that, that much of Xavi's Barcelona feels more typically ajax than typically at Barca. It strikes me from what we've said that it's not necessarily about excelling in tight spaces, not about accepting that the midfield areas, the central areas will be congested, but making sure that we're the greatest team ever at being good in those areas. But as John has said, it's about actually spacing the whole pitch, creating more space, overloads and 1v1s. And really that feels like a, kind of an approach of its time. Whereas the tiki tacker approach, dare I call it that, um, is of a now of a, a different era. Yeah, I, I think that is true. I mean, Javi's obviously a very studious guy, and I don't think there was much danger that he'd just be focusing on what he used to do very well ten years ago. I mean, he clearly uh, Guardiola is clearly a big influence, big mentor for him. But I'm sure he knows by Guardiola's Bayern Munich and Guardiola's Manchester City almost as well as he knows the Barcelona team he played in. And yeah, there's a lot of influences from. Uh, from more contemporary Guardiola teams. But uh, yeah, what he's done is really impressive. I mean, um, you know, we started this with the caveat that Barcelona weren't as bad as maybe the league table would suggest, but it's been really impressive, I think. It's just, suddenly the squad looks different. If you look at the squad and you think there's loads of options and, you know, the, the starting 11 for um, for the Classico didn't feature that many players. Um, I was actually looking at the list of players they've used in the league uh, this year and they've used 37 players in La Liga which just is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, you look through the list and there's so many players who just seem, well, long gone, like mm. Emerson Royale and Sergio Aguero and Antoine Griezmann and Philippe Coutinho. But, I mean, he's suddenly managed to get a, a squad and a group of players that looks cohesive. And that really didn't seem uh, very likely uh, early in the season. John, another uh, difference to previous Barca sides perhaps is uh, this approach to, to moments of transition, both in the attacking and defensive phase kind of a bit more high octane stuff i wonder if in keeping with that barcelona's recruitment under xavi might look a little bit different whether there might be a bit more emphasis on physical attributes and players who are going to thrive with with space to move into because of those physical skill uh that physical skill set I, I was interested to read i think it was in dermot's piece about barca that a knowledgeable source said about their January transfer business, which was not heralded at the time, but now looks excellent with Aubameyang, with Adama, with Dani Alves and with Ferran Torres as well. Someone said to Dermot, they sign players from the Premier League with better rhythm and physicality as the football there is faster than La Liga. That physical side was what Barca is missing. I thought that was a really interesting piece of information. Interesting quote. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting observation. And I do think that it's really important to talk about recruiting when we talk about Xavi's Barcelona, because as you've mentioned at the start of the show, Xavi's Barcelona was nothing special for the first several months that he was here. It was really the the winter transfer window that kicked this team into gear. The arrival of Ferran Torres, of Aubameyang, of Adama Traore, of Dani Alves. Like it, it's, it's a whole new squad than it was a couple months ago, which as you've also mentioned, was a whole new squad than they started the season with. So this, this squad is kind of undergoing this continuous evolution. And there does seem to be an emphasis right now on bringing physicality, on bringing pace, especially across that front line. And that's something that Javi seems to have wanted and certainly has used very well. Michael, we focus mostly on, on the on-pitch stuff. That's what interests and excites us more than anything else. But we'll just touch on the off-field 
issues as the, they very much seem to be um, from from late 2021 the club seemed in in crisis can we give the executives credit for the decisions that they've made um, you know John's just said we're not actually sure what the next few windows at Barcelona will look like and who's managing those things and and whether they you know whether whether this success is basically by luck or by design. But what do you make of the fact that only six months ago it, it felt like Barca were in crisis, and now it absolutely doesn't feel like that? It feels like quite a bright future. Yeah, I don't know too much about the behind the scenes things to be honest. But they've made they've made one very key decision. They they showed faith in Xavi and got him in, and there were some doubts about that considering his lack of experience. They also seem to have. Uh, done whatever they've done financially to allow them to sign players, which, again, was a question mark earlier in the campaign. And I think it does show that, you know, that we all know this, but a crisis for a big club is often not as bad as it seems. Mm. You know, there's only so far really a big club is going to fall. And even if Barcelona had a really disastrous season, they were still probably going to be in, the, you know, the Europa League places by the end of the campaign at worst. So... Yeah, it, it doesn't take too much to turn it around. It often takes a good managerial appointment and a couple of signings and suddenly it looks like a different club. But but it's also not to be assumed that that will just happen because a club is a big club or a rich club compared to their peers. There is a club in England that is the richest club in England or certainly in terms of organic revenue uh, that have been struggling to reach the very top table f- for some time now and haven't made the right decisions in, in sporting terms to, to get really anywhere particularly near it. Manchester United? It is what I was hinting at. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, they finished second last season. They're in the Champions League places. I think they made a, a bad managerial decision uh, the last time around. But I think it seems likely they're going to get a better manager next time around. And I think if they were to sign a very good central midfield player and have a good manager, I think they'd be challenging for the title next season. So... Yeah, it's, it's it's quite rare these days that you go from being a, a, a really big club to not a big yeah. club because of the financial side of things. And, and Barcelona, I think, we're always going to bounce back. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been fun to see how hmm. quickly it's happened. And, and could I add one last thing, Ali? Please. It's not a bad time for them to have had a crisis because Real Madrid are not in good shape, really. I mean, I know they had that incredible comeback against PSG, but it isn't a vintage Real Madrid side. Atleti are miles off the pace compared to where they should be. Sevilla are up there challenging, but I don't think they score enough goals to be ever challenging for the league title. So it's not like they're playing catch-up in the early 2000s when there were Valencia and Deportivo and lots of sides who could kind of take over from them as, as one of the leading contenders. It's not a great La Liga, probably the worst La Liga it's been for 20, 25 years in terms of competitiveness uh, compared to other European leagues and the other top clubs so in a way they're not battling back to the top if that makes sense in terms of winning La Liga they don't need to over overhaul one of the best teams in Europe who I think are in the Premier League and, and probably Bayern Munich as well so it's uh, yeah an interesting time in Spanish football in that respect. Well, Barca are 12 points behind Real Madrid. Uh, Barca have, have played a game fewer as well. Is is that too many points to catch up a Real Madrid team that you've described as not all that? Uh, I, I think it probably is too many. Well, almost certainly is too many points, yes, because they dropped too many points in the first half of the season. But uh, again, the underlying numbers has their goal difference at better than Real Madrid's. Mm over the course of the season, which is is quite startling, really. Well, they're strong favourites to win the Europa League uh, at the moment. Still work to do there, but favourites to win it. Uh, and just in terms of, of La Liga and, and Barcelona's newfound strength, I enjoyed a comment from Ouahib on the Athletic site, who wrote after the 4-0 against Real Madrid in the last Clasico, that this Clasico is an avant-bouche for next year's clashes, as Real's reinforcements, i.e. Mbappe, etc. will lower the Benzema dependency, while Barca's youth will be even stronger and more experimented. Brackets, maybe with the Europa League in the cabinet. Uh, it is quite an exciting moment in that sense, John. Uh, it could be an exciting future rivalry between these two sides. Yeah, and I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm not sure what the future of this Barcelona team looks like because these January signings were sort of uh, a stopgap. Uh, you know, Adama Traore in particular seemed like sort of a temporary signing. Obama Yang, nobody was sure how it was going to work out. 
And this summer, they're going to have to kind of continue that rebuild. It's not clear how drastic it'll, it'll be. But I think that the fact that Barcelona is winning right now, and Dermot has written about this, has sort of papered over the serious financial problems that this club still has. And yes, they got some loan money uh, in the wintertime. I don't know, you know how much money they got or how, to what extent that solves their problems. But the problems were real and they were serious. And I think that they, they will continue to plague the club uh, at least for another few years. And so that, that may hinder this uh, you know, kind of growth curve that Barcelona is on. Although fortunately they have a lot of young talented players. Uh, on the other hand, Madrid has been kind of sitting on its hands for the last, what, five, six years in the transfer market, just playing Luka Modric until his legs fall off, uh, Tony Kroos as well. And, and I think that, you know, this is going to be the summer when they finally drop the bomb and sign everyone and everything. And so, yes, we'll have a very different legal title race next year. Uh, and I think that both teams will be very good. I think that both teams are not very good right now, but Barcelona is certainly building in the right direction and Madrid will soon be buying in the right direction. And it'll be fun to watch. Also worth pointing out while we're talking about Barcelona-Real Madrid rivalry, massive game between uh, the two of them tomorrow in, uh, in the women's team. Sold out the camp new. Not sure how seriously we should take this rivalry considering Real Madrid have only really existed for two years <laughs> as, uh, in their current format. But the idea that they're selling out the camp new is just a massive thing for women's football. So Barcelona's strong favourites, but I'm really looking forward to watching that game. Uh- Barcelona Madrid did give uh, the Barcelona women a, a close game just the other week. And, and I think that that was shocking to everyone, given that the Barcelona women are what undefeated with a plus 130 goal difference in the league. <laughs> They're essentially as perfect as a football team can be. 138 goals scored in 25 games seven goals conceded for FC Barcelona Femeni. Uh, that is one to keep an eye on, as is everything on site really in terms of the financial stuff Dermot Corrigan's your man really to follow writing about La Liga writing about uh, all sorts of of topics on and off field uh, in Spanish football so do make sure you stay locked to the Athletic site for everything that John and Michael and friends are putting out at the moment theathletic.com forward slash tactics that's where to visit if you'd like to subscribe today just £1 a month for the first six months is the current offer very nice indeed next week on this podcast free kicks I love them. You love them. They're getting the Football Tactics Pod treatment next time out. Thanks for listening to us this week. Join us then. This has been the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.